0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. I had the distinct pleasure today of interviewing David Blight, whose new biography of Frederick Douglass, subtitled Prophet of Freedom, joined us here in the studio for a conversation about Frederick Douglass that covers the enormity of this man's life. It's, it's, it's a meaty, fascinating conversation, and David Blight is just a delight to listen to. So let's get to my conversation with David Blight. In many ways, our understanding of Frederick Douglass. Uh, runaway slave turned abolitionist turned orator extraordinaire is more imbued by myth than knowledge. This despite Douglass's own three autobiographies and countless other books, essays, studies, etc. Fortunately, we now have the first new biography in decades, titled Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom by David Blight. David is a teacher, scholar, public historian, he's on the faculty at Yale, and director at Yale of the Gilder Lehrman Center for the Study of Slavery, Resistance, and Abolition, plus the author, editor of numerous other books on Douglas, the Civil War, and slavery. This latest bio is a riveting exploration of the brilliance, resilience, bravery, and contradictions of a man who defined slavery and freedom in the 19th century and whose actions and words still educate and enhance our understanding to this day. David, welcome to Just the Right Book.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Um, So, you know, um, when I said riveting, I meant it, even though this is a, what, an 800, (laughs) you know, it's a – big book, but I found myself at every uh, chapter just sort of, hmm. you know, just absorbing it all. And the thing that I, I wanted to start with, what started your interest
1: in Frederick Douglass? Well, first of all, that's thrilling to hear from a, a reader like you that you do find it riveting because it's always a problem in biography to sustain the story through the pivots of the life uh, without chopping it up into episodes and chapters and all the rest, so that's, that's a No, it time. worked. Well, that's great to hear, because uh, you never know exactly when you're writing it if it's all working out. Um, my interest in Douglas goes back to all the way back to when I was a high school teacher in the 1970s. I uh, spent seven years in my hometown of Flint, Michigan, as a public school teacher, and it was there first, I think. It certainly wasn't in school uh, or even college that I discovered Douglas as I was teaching. But then it was in graduate school that I – when I went to the University of Wisconsin that I was looking for you know subjects and topics. And I, I knew that I wanted to study abolitionism. I wanted to study the coming of the Civil War and so on. I landed on Douglas in part because I really wanted to study black abolitionists. Mm. And Douglas, by far, left the most material to work with. He was clearly the most important, and immediately I got caught up in, uh, where I've to some extent been ever since, in in his language, in the power of his words, uh, the power of his rhetoric, whether that's in his writings or his speeches, uh, the autobiographies or his editorials. And I did my first book on Douglas. It was a dissertation book, a narrower. Kind of intellectual history of Douglas and the meaning of the Civil War, um, and I I did other works on Douglas. I edited versions, editions of his autobiographies. I wrote lots of essays on Douglas and so forth. And I really wanted to get him out of my life. <laughs> uh, he'd been a piece of every book I've done in some way or form. About 10 years ago, I encountered a private collection of Douglas material by great blind good luck, and uh, that private collection owned by Walter Evans in Savannah, Georgia, is in great part the reason I did this biography.
0: And was this unknown material that Evans had?
1: It was certainly unknown to me and to almost all other uh, scholars of Douglas in that period, uh Walt, and
0: why was it unknown?
1: Well, it's a private collector. Uh and private collectors sometimes uh keep Stay private. Collections <laughs> relatively right. private. He had shown his Douglas material to a few other people. Uh, I was not the first to see it, but I was the first to seriously use it. Uh Walter is an extraordinary man. Uh, He's a retired African-American surgeon who grew up in segregated Savannah Mm. but but went north for higher education, did medical school at the University of Michigan, practiced in Detroit for 35 years, and then retired uh, in the early aughts back to Savannah where he has an extraordinary, beautiful house just chocked full of African-American rare books, manuscripts, and Mm. art. Now, this collection, um, he had begun to show it to people when I met him about 10 years ago in about 2008, Um, but hardly anyone had ever used it, and it consists of many things, but primarily of about 10 very large Douglas family scrapbooks, which are chocked full of thousands of newspaper clippings.
0: These are the scrapbooks that his kids had put together, right? Exactly.
1: Douglas's sons primarily collected these over the last 30 to 35 years of their father's life incessantly. The collection also includes uh, a good number of family letters and photographs and other kinds of family documentation. But what it made possible and the reason I committed to the new biography although it took me some time to muster the courage, is that it opens up a window into the last third Mm. of Frederick Douglass's life like we've never had before. If people tend to know anything about Douglass, it's usually about the young, heroic Douglass who escaped from slavery and wrote the famous narrative and becomes a a great abolitionist. But that latter third of his life, when he becomes the aging man— The great orator out on the circuit. A politician. uh, A politician who learns pragmatism, becomes a kind of Republican Party insider, and the patriarch of a huge extended family.
0: At an estate, right? Yeah. Cedar Hill. Big
1: house of 22 rooms or so. I was
0: like picturing Hyde Park.
1: Yeah, well, (laughs) in a sense, he developed that image almost of of the great African-American sage. He was called sometimes the sage of Cedar Hill or the sage of Anacostia where mm-hmm. the house is. Um... He was never as wealthy as the house may have seemed to make him appear. Because it way.
0: ended up being like 21 rooms or something, right? He
1: had it on after he bought it. And yeah, it was 20-some rooms. Uh, but he had an extended family of three surviving sons, one surviving daughter, 21 grandchildren, and about two or three fictive siblings mm. whom he adopted or they adopted And they
0: uh-huh. you know in in yiddish you would say mishpucha you know right. extended That's right. family it
1: was uh, it was a clan really and in the book i try to show uh, i call them uh, the the douglases became a kind of black first family of washington dc mm. in the dc press black and white press everything they did got into the press good bad and ugly um, so, so, David,
0: I want to go backwards a second because sure. as I read the book, um, so as, as, as you've talked about, you found material that greatly enhanced um, the breadth and understanding of the last part of Douglass' life. Mm-hmm. So what I thought we would try to do before we got to that sure. – and again, to make sure that we're imbuing the beginning of Douglass' life mm-hmm. with knowledge – Um, So, as you said, we know him as the runaway slave, the sort of warrior, resilient, brilliant guy. So I Mm -hmm. want to start with a question. So he Mm -hmm. was born into slavery on the eastern shore Mm -hmm. of Maryland at the Y Plantation?
1: Well, he wasn't born at the Y Plantation. He was born about eight or nine miles east of that along the Tuckahoe River.
0: Oh, that's right. Then he and, went to the Y right, plantation. He was delivered
1: to the Y house when he was about five and six years old by his grandmother. Um, he was born probably in his grandmother Betsy Bailey's cabin. Um,
0: and he was named Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. Right, which is an extraordinary Correct. and elaborate That's a big name for a, a little... a very big name yeah. for
1: a little slave boy. And we don't have any particular... There are no documents that show us why his mother Harriet Bailey, one of Betsy's five daughters, would give that kind of name to this kid, but if you think about it and Douglas claimed his mother was literate. So if mm. we if we take him you know as at his word on that.
0: But he didn't really – the last time he saw his mother, he was five. Yeah, he How would hardly, he even know how literate – what literate was? He would heard she was literate. Yeah, I see.
1: And he barely had any memory of her. He had to kind of invent images of his mother. He never knew who his father was, although – But presumed – Presumed to be one of his masters. Uh, he had two owners over time. Uh, it's – we still don't know exactly who his father was. There are two or three – likely candidates. But Douglas always assumed it was one of his masters, either what he called his old master, Aaron Anthony, or his newer master, Thomas Old. But to his dying day, Douglas never stopped trying to figure out his paternity, mm. who the father was, for a lot of reasons. And didn't
0: he hire someone or engage someone to help him do uh, the research at one point? Am I remembering that?
1: Uh, he did ask a lot of people to oh. help him, and including the son and daughter of Thomas Auld. He actually mm. became quite good friends with these potential siblings uh, or half-siblings. Um, he got to know um, Amanda and Benjamin Auld in his later years, and he corresponded with them. He met with them. Even up until the last months of his life, he wrote a letter to Benjamin Ald, asking him once again, do you know my birth date? Do you know the mm. circumstances of my birth? Which was a way of asking... Who is your was? father my father? <laughs> you know. Yeah. But he never got a yes to that. Or he never told us he got a yes to that. So the, one of the first facts people need to understand about Douglas, and it comes out indeed in so many aspects of his adult life, is that he is an orphan. He had no real sense of parents. Mm. And even the grandmother, whom he remembered much better than than his mother— Dropped him off at the Y house when he's six years old, and he never saw her again, so he is an abandoned little boy in this in this world of slavery, this almost industrial world of slavery at the Great Y plantation. He only spends portions of two years there, but they're they're crucial because that's where his memories really begin mm-hmm. and he he vividly recreates those memories in his autobiographies, um, vividly. And happily, When, as a researcher and a Douglas scholar, you can go today to the Y House. It's an extraordinary plantation.
0: looks uh, like it's just beautiful.
1: It is beautiful. It's been completely preserved. The family that lives there now. Is it now,
0: open to tourists? Not really no. open
1: to tourists except – by careful appointment with Richard and that Betty, that
0: Douglas scholars might yeah. be able to arrange. Well, bet,
1: bet, uh, Betty, um, I'm sorry. Um, uh, the Tillmans, who who live there now, are fifth generation direct descendants of the old. Of of no of uh, the Lloyds who owned the Y House. This was Colonel Lloyd, uh, Colonel Edward Lloyd, who had been the governor of Maryland. And that plantation was the largest slave holding and the largest plantation system in all of Maryland. Uh, Douglas only spent about two years there, but they are fundamental. Uh, it's a fundamental period for him, because that's where he begins to learn what slavery really is. Yeah, and that's where he begins to see vicious beatings and terrible treatments. But it's also a place he was a child in. He, he in the autobiography, and
0: friends with oh yeah. friends with the son of friends the man the son
1: who would have probably been the first other child he learned about books from yeah cuz used to stand outside the door when when uh, the, the little the uh, little Lloyd boy would come out of his school lessons and Douglas says I would ask him what'd you learn what'd you learn mm-hmm. what'd you learn let me see your reader you know and and uh, Douglas was not yet a reader, but he would be very soon. Um,
0: so, David, here's a here's a question that struck me as I was reading about the early part of his life, because within that world of slavery, which mm-hmm. Douglas became an incredible witness of yeah. um, to a powerful degree, obviously, and we know that, mm-hmm. but he also within that disgusting system mm-hmm. had enormous luck yeah. In, yeah. in... Several times. Several times. There were instances of mm-hmm. um, small moments of luck, like mm-hmm. being able, like the mm-hmm. uh, Sophie Auld right. being willing to uh, mm-hmm. teach him how to read oh, yeah. uh, when he was in Baltimore, about the fact that he became an urban slave mm-hmm. rather than a plantation Absolutely.
1: slave. That was the biggest break of his life.
0: Right? Mm-hmm. And so... Do you think that that what combinations of things do you think contributed to that mm-hmm. pure luck mm-hmm. that it became clear that he was a superiorly mm-hmm. gifted human being, um, eliciting yeah. the kind of uh, sympathy from? Mm-hmm. I mean, what do you what do you well I, I, subscribe that to?
1: It's a profound question, Roxanne, because it, it tells us a lot about who the adult writer and thinker becomes. Some of this is blind good luck, but some of it is the circumstances of where where he was. Now when he's on the Eastern Shore, you know, he both in his early youth and then in his teenage years, he spent about 10, a little more than 10 of his 20 years growing up as a slave on the Eastern Shore and almost 10 in Baltimore. Right. When on the Eastern Shore, he is destined to a fate, which would probably mean we'd never have heard of him again, and indeed he, became, he was a field hand in his teenage years. But the best great good luck he ever had was being sent to Baltimore. He was first sent there at age seven to be the companion of Thomas Ald's brother's little boy, who was, Tom, who was Tommy Ald, and um, he's sent there to be the companion of this kid but while there, as you just suggest to Sophia, Ald, his then mistress, teaches him in the alphabet. She took him into her home like another child. She she literally did. And showed
0: him the first love.
1: The first love, he, he called her angelic. She was a mother figure to mm-hmm. him. God knows. Uh, and for a, more than a year, she taught him daily uh, his alphabet, his letters, got him reading, had him reading out loud the Bible, uh, whatever he understood of it. Um, <clears throat> then you know the the man of the house. Hugh all f- saw this happening, and you know as Douglas famously writes, forced his wife to stop teaching him. But it was too late. Douglas had discovered language. He had discovered somehow there was a power in it. He then began to connect in the streets of Baltimore with little white kids, the white boys. And it, it, when when kids are we all know they're this, kids when they're seven, eight, nine, and ten years old, they're kids. And these kids had readers from school, and particularly the reader called the Columbian Orator, which Douglas then wanted to have
0: Which himself. Lincoln also
1: Lincoln had it also. It was the second best selling school reader in the United States. It went through twenty seven editions over fifty some years. There was even an edition of this, quite frankly, anti slavery reading book for children published in Maryland. His own copy was a Maryland edition of it. He manages to get his own copy of that by the time he's 11 and 12, which is he,
0: miraculous also. <laughs>
1: well, it is it is partly miraculous, but but it's also the fact that he saw this book. He he tells us that he did things like trade, you know, warm bread from Sophia's kitchen for spelling lessons with these kids. There are many, many steps in this, but not least of which is when he's this early teen, 12, 13, he connects with an old black preacher, a guy Mm. named Charles Lawson that he called Father Lawson or Uncle Lawson at times. And Lawson was only semi-literate, it appears, but he loved the Bible. He was one of these old men who sort of lived in the stories, especially the Old Testament. And he sat Douglas down or Fred Bailey And just whenever they had time, he would sit on the stoop of old Lawson's cabin and read out loud from the Bible for hours and hours Mm. and hours. And the thing that that one gets from that is that when we find Douglass's rhetoric later, whether spoken or written – Written in these kinds of sermonic cadences and sermonic tones, that's actually the King James version of the Bible. That's how he got language in his head. Mm. But then also, when he's in Baltimore as a teenager, he is eventually sent back to the Eastern Shore and then back to Baltimore. He attended at least four churches in Baltimore, two white, two black. He names all the preachers. He tells you which preachers he liked the best and so on. He had been hearing this sermonic Language, and the Bible read over and over and over through his youth, so there's a combination of this extraordinary book called the Columbian Order, which by the way wasn't was it was an it was an amazing collection of speeches from both antiquity and the enlightenment, but it was also the beginning of it is a twenty page manual of oratory: How to Deliver a, a speech. speech, How to use your hands and your gestures and how to modulate your voice, and so on. It, to to this day, it reads like, um, like a... A, a re- primer. A primer, a redoing of Aristotle's, you know, principles of rhetoric. Um, he didn't need to read Aristotle. He had read Caleb Bingham's essay on how to be an orator. And in that process now, and we're talking about a whole decade of his youth... Douglas came to, to embrace words and language as the only real possession he had. Mm. Beyond that, there's always a mystery in how some people become geniuses with words yeah. and become writers and, and develop that will to be known as the will to write and the will to be heard. Uh, there are mysteries in this, but it's not entirely a mystery when you realize the opportunities he had. And when he's in Baltimore, he collects newspapers. He collects anything he can find that he can read.
0: But you know, David, what it seems like too when you when I read read your book is an extraordinary intersection of the um, magnetism mm-hmm. of Douglas, so that these people, the little white boys, mm-hmm. Sophia, mm-hmm. the preachers, yeah. were smitten with him. Oh, I'm, I'm making this up, but that's the no. Impression he was a charismatic, get, charismatic right? kid.
1: He was a charismatic kid. We've all known. Children like that, who are just precocious and somehow bright, and then as they coupled convene. with his
0: genius and his curiosity,
1: right, and even his physicality, when he grew into a you know a strapping six foot six foot one teenager, um, uh, he did have an effect on people then, and God knows later the rest of his life. But Thomas Ald, his owner, when Douglas was caught planning an escape for a ba- – he called them his band of brothers. There were about six of them planning to steal some boats and go up the Chesapeake, which would never have worked, by the way. Um, he was put in chains and thrown into jail in, in the Talbot County Courthouse. And for two weeks, he sat in that jail fully expecting. The other three got released. The other three got released, but he fully expected his owner was going to walk in someday and he's going to sell him. Send him, him south. He's going to sell him. He was worth up to $1,000 probably. But Thomas Hall came in and one day just said, "I'm sending you back to Baltimore." He made this sort of promise he would free Douglas on his twenty-first birthday. But how
0: <laughs> crazy is that in that
1: time? <laughs> um, it's not entirely unusual for a slave owner to to have very favorite, you know, have favorites among slaves. There's also still the possibility, and people have made a lot of this that Ald might have been his father. Uh, I don't think Ald is the best candidate for the father, although I can't prove that. But nevertheless, he had had this kind of influence. Basically, Ald was saying to him as a 17-year-old, almost 18-year-old, you're a lousy slave. I'm sending you back <laughs> to the city. Uh, I could sell you south. Uh, and it's, you're a lousy It's slave. slightly miraculous that he did not because of that kind of money. If yeah, you think about then. It, he's got this kid standing in front of him worth what would today be in the – Thousands and thousands of dollars. Yeah. It's like losing your Mercedes. Um, I don't have one. But well, I, I don't get either. But <laughs> <laughs> I get like, the point. I use that with my students. They get it, you know. Yeah. Um, but uh, he sends him back to Baltimore, which was the luckiest break of his life. So it is a combination, as you suggested, of a certain kind of charisma that he had even as a youth with people who make choices in his life with him and for him. Yeah. And in the, in Baltimore, this is crucial too. Talk about luck or fortune. Baltimore was a city. By the time he escaped, Baltimore is a city of about a hundred and thirty thousand people. It's a huge ocean port. It's a great maritime. I became center.
0: fascinated. Like yeah. I wanted to go after reading the book. Fell's Point,
1: in Baltimore. I want, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I, I thought,
0: wow, this city that in that of, time. Yeah,
1: that world of shipbuilding. He worked in the shipyards. You know, that's where he gained his skills. He also took some beatings because the white skilled craftsmen
0: weren't too keen on
1: having a black guy walk in and become a caulker next to them. But in Baltimore, of that 130,000 people, there are only about 3,000 slaves. There are about 17,000 free blacks. Baltimore had a huge free black population, which did several southern cities, and Douglas lived within that community, mm. too.
0: In fact, among them found...
1: Found Anna Murray, his, exactly. his uh, then fiance, And there was a debating society. There were these churches. There was Old Father Lawson. He had a certain freedom and of And the movement. slaves
0: and the freed blacks...
1: They mingled together yeah. in almost <clears throat> everything they did. But they
0: had access.
1: Yes, The difference was, several differences, Uh, Douglas, whatever wages Douglas was making down in the shipyard, he had to give them to his master. And then his master started to let him keep some portion of it. Um, David, you know, one thing that was, there there were
0: many um, stories that you tell in the book that were stark reminders mm -hmm. about the reality of slavery and the repercussions to our time. and. I don't know that we'll get to all of that, but one that I don't know why this struck me as so monumentally inhumane. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, we we often think about slaves on plantations and have some understanding of what that looked like. But when all commissioned Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. out Douglas to work down at the shipyards. And then he had to show up at a prescribed time, and he was making, I think, 7 or $8 a week, you said. And Alt would give him 25 cents. And the idea that your labors, which have now been monetized by a third party, nonetheless belong to you, Mm -hmm. was somehow... Just dis- you know, right. more as despicable, but a right. furtherance of, sure. of behavior that you can't even believe happened mm-hmm. in a time that we can count back
1: to. Well, that's an, that's a particularly poignant example of what Douglas always said. He said this in the autobiographies. He said it later that it was not the physical abuse of slavery that troubled him most. That's bad enough to be beaten. Yeah, is brutal. And to watch other people beaten, worse in some ways. But it was the mental humiliations, mm-hmm. the psychological humiliations. The ownership. The deni- yeah, the denial of your humanity. Douglas always said he feared most to preserve his mind, not his body, when he mm. was a slave. Now, that's saying something. Uh, if you've been beaten... If you can manage. It, yeah. But but it was that fear that that, his, that he would lose the you know the connections of his own mind through this kind of humiliation even when he writes about the beatings that he watched of other slaves it was the way it humiliated like an, an older black man forced to his knees stripped to the waist and then whipped you know it it you know the physical part of it you know it comes and it goes but it was the humiliation of slavery and i do think That when we find Douglass so many times later describing the essence of slavery, the essence of that kind of exploitation and oppression, the meaning of that in the human soul, it comes from that experience. Mm. He's he's really writing about a mental and psychological humiliation as much as he's ever writing about physical treatment.
0: Yeah. And uh, so what I... I hate to, like, skip over his sure. becoming a runaway slave and sure. and Anna helping him do that and mm-hmm. the sort of precariousness and mm-hmm. boldness of all of that. But he lands in mm-hmm. Massachusetts mm-hmm. with Anna mm-hmm. and very quickly, sort of shockingly quickly, by the mm-hmm. age of 20, yeah. he becomes a renowned mm-hmm. orator. Now, one of the things I'd like you to share with us, because I think it's hard to imagine. Right. He starts going Mm -hmm. on the road, giving these speeches. Share with us how many speeches he gave in (laughs) a year, how long the speeches were, and how many people were showing up at these things.
1: Well, um, first of all, it's not overnight. Uh, He escapes at age 20. He spends three years in New Bedford, Massachusetts, where he works as a as a common laborer. He works carrying at what, the shipyards. Shipyards carries whale oil casks. Then he gets a job in a little foundry working that that pump that runs the the foundry. Uh, he does carpentry. He does any kind of work he can do. But he's speaking. Al- but along he already the way, starts right yes. by about the when he's twenty one, he begins preaching at the local A M E Zion Church. And because somebody there discovered this kid could speak, and he learned immediately, overnight, the, the the which he probably already understood. He'd attended all these churches in Baltimore. Whatever the text was that Sunday, he preached on it. And this was somebody already well-steeped in the Bible. He'd been reading the Bible all through his youth. And in those years, he probably was reading it voraciously in mm-hmm. his time off. So he's a preacher for two years, really, before uh, Massachusetts abolitionists from Boston come down and suddenly discover him. He was discovered preaching in the church. He was also discovered at an anti-slavery meeting that was held in New Bedford where white people did attend. And so by the age of 23, he's barely 23. When the Garrisonian, the Massachusetts Anti-Slavery Society invites him to go out to Nantucket for this big anti-slavery convention, he did. He gave two speeches. He said the first time he'd ever spoken in any large scale to white people. He's very young. He's still not truly all formed as an orator. Mm -hmm. We have to remember that this wasn't some genius that just walked out of slavery and took over. But
0: enough for Garrison to capitulate to him. He
1: was a terrific storyteller on his feet mm. he used words beautifully already they hired him he went out on the road and to the second part of your question from the fall of 1841 through into 1844 he went on the circuit first just around new england town after town after town go to a map and find every small town in in massachusetts he spoke there in a church or somewhere Then they started sending him further out into New York State, Pennsylvania, all the way to Ohio. The speeches became—well, eventually, before 1844, he's delivered hundreds of these kinds of speeches. They tended to travel in groups, troops, three, four, five, six abolitionists traveling together at once, traveling by train where they could, stagecoaches, carriages, horseback— Town after town after town, sometimes just small, tiny audiences that would show up and sometimes huge audiences, especially to hear this new phenom, this young guy who's 24, 25 and 26 years old, who can get up not only and tell the tales of his life. And you got to remember, most of the speeches he's making in those first three, four years are what he writes up in the narrative. They're, right. they're the stories of Miss Sophia teaching him to read, and they're the stories of the fight with Covey. But in those first few years, he also developed a second kind of speech, which became his signature. It was called the, slavehold, uh, the slaveholder's sermon. He would go into a mimicry of the southern white preacher. Mm. Using those pieces of the Bible, saying, "Slaves be be true to your masters, be loyal to your masters. He'd go into southern dialect, he'd prance around the stage like an angry old slaveholder and and audiences loved it. It was like a performance, and sometimes it got to the point where these groups of the the troop of abolitionists, the way they would conduct a meeting is they'd have some resolution or two that they would speak to or against and so forth. He'd get up and he'd speak to the resolution or whatever and then somebody in the crowd would say, Fred, do the sermon. And he'd say, oh, OK. And he'd break into the slavery. And it would sermon.
0: expose the hypocrisy it's, of southern that became religious whites, right? It,
1: or even of national religious hypocrisy about slavery. Mm. It, it became his favorite subject and it will remain so to a great degree even when he goes over to England. Uh, to Ireland, Scotland, and England uh, in 1845-46. In fact, he landed there while the Scots were having one of their great ecclesiastical battles over slavery and where they were raising the money. And he landed right in the middle of a situation where that slaveholder's sermon was just perfectly made for those audiences, yeah. the hypocrisy of slave ownership. Douglas was, from the beginning, a great ironist. He will get even better at it with time. But Douglas was so good at exposing the contradiction, exposing the 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 sort of
0: without preaching. Well, more by, by storytelling. More by seemed. story.
1: More by narrative. Yeah. More by storytelling, which is but more not, compelling. Yes, but not without preaching. I mean, he he was he was a master at throwing biblical lines down on his audience because he knew they would know them, especially from the Old Testament. And but but. This, this American hypocrisy became his subject, uh, especially in these years when he's still a kind of—he's a follower of William Lloyd Garrison's moral persuasion. Uh, it, later, he's, when he becomes a political abolitionist by the 1850s, it's still his subject. It's just now a great political crime as well as a moral crime. But Douglas, as you just suggested, had a way— of embedding that story of hypocrisy in his own story mm-hmm. and then in the story of all of his people and then in the story of the nation.
0: We'll get right back to my conversation with David Blight in a minute. But first, I'd like to take a moment to tell you about today's sponsor, which is actually a book. So that makes sense. Uh, and the name of the book is The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford. And here, here's some quotes about her book. Uh, this is from Hoda from The Today Show. It's never too early to get advice from Kathy Lee. Of course, Kathy Lee's her pal. Uh this beautiful book is full of life lessons for your little one. My Haley loves it. Uh Savannah Guthrie, another pal, uh says pictures are adorable. The message is important, uh teaching kids to be generous with their hearts. Here's here's what I got. Um it's a picture book, so it's for little kids. But what what it does is, you know, a lot of times when you talk to kids, you say, well, what do you want to be when you grow up? What this picture book by Kathy Lee Gifford reminds us to say is instead to say, what do you love to do? And what that question suggests is that each kid has their own gift. And by asking them what they love to do, you're encouraging them to develop their own gift and be their person, and so I, you know, I I like that message. I think it makes sense. It's a way for kids to take some pride in their own identity. So I I, I get why people like Hoda and Savannah like the book, but I can see how as a parent you'd like to encourage that message. So The Gift That I Can Give is a colorful new picture book from Kathy Lee Gifford, and the book encourages kids to use their own talents and personalities and make the world a better place. For the entire month of November, listeners can get 30% off of The Gift That I Can Give by Kathy Lee Gifford by using the code JTRB. Just visit store.faithgateway.com and apply the code JTRB at checkout, and you'll get thirty percent off on the book. How fun is that? So, David, what? One of the questions I had for you is: so he was a Garrison um, mm-hmm. uh, student mentee mm-hmm. until he wasn't, yeah. um, and he um, th- there's quick, quick. Being done with that part of history, mm-hmm. but um he so he early on very much believed in, as you say, moral persuasion, right sort of what you would you would describe as a pacifistic way of yeah uh, promoting the abolition of change, slavery changed
1: hearts and minds
0: what moved him over to a more political yeah. not violent but activist way of understanding you needed to deal with slavery?
1: Well, what moves him toward political abolition were many things, not least of which was the Mexican War, which breaks out when he's in England and it's finishing when he comes back. Part of it is just growing up and becoming a more independent thinker, an independent mind. Uh, part of it is that... The becoming
0: slave, angrier or not?
1: Definitely angrier. When he returned from England, where he spends 18 months, 1845 to 47. He had just flowered. He had never been treated with such kindness in his life as he was treated in Ireland, Scotland, mm. and England. I mean, he ran into some races. And
0: first, real, real um, experience of be- what being free would feel like, right?
1: Yes, truly free, yeah. and and quite the celebrity. Mm. And in, and he's a
0: good-looking, oh, tall man, as you uh, said.
1: Women, British abolition, women, British women abolitionists swooning around him everywhere he goes. It was a group of uh, one
0: of whom became a friend for life, a right? Very,
1: very close friend for life, Julia Griffiths, right? Uh, but there were others. There was a group of women that led the campaign to buy his freedom for him. And not suggesting anything about that except that they became devoted to this brilliant young black man Mm. who could walk the walk and talk the talk like nobody they'd ever seen. But when he came back from that experience in 1847, he was a very angry young man. He's only still in his late 20s. And he was disgusted now with American racism. He came back with a speech he kept giving in which... He would say, among other things, I have no country. I have no patriotism. My country dismisses me, denies me, and I deny it. Now, that's a man becoming politicized. Mm -hmm. But then he also comes under the influence of another group of abolitionists led by Garrett Smith out in New York who created the Liberty Party, who then created the Free Soil Party. And Douglas, again, he's only in his late 20s, about to turn 30 years old. And he learns that, you know— This system may never be defeated by just trying to change your heart. We're going to have to change the laws. We're going to have to change the political structure, the power structure. He comes to see that the slavery problem is ultimately a question of power politics. And he changes his views on several things that find him in great conflict with Mr. Garrison, who had been his, without question, um, father figure mentor. Mm -hmm. And that one of those is uh, the anti slavery interpretation of the Constitution. He also comes out to embrace, on certain terms, uses of violence. And then he finally surely embraces uh, political parties and the use of politics, such that by the early 1850s, when he's editing his own newspaper and he's out on the road.
0: That was the first newspaper, right? Northern Star? The North North Star. Star, North Star. He
1: changed the name in the 50s to Frederick Douglass's paper put his own name on it. But by 1851, 52, 53, he's a thoroughgoing political abolitionist and not least of which because of the great significance of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. Which forced people in northern communities, black or white, if they had, if they were anti-slavery or abolitionist of to some turn form, turn them in. Yeah, and now the idea of escaped slaves in your own community that you're supposed to turn in. Nothing could politicize people quite as quickly as that law. And, and
0: Douglas was a runaway yeah. slave in Massachusetts, subject yeah. to that law for like eight years. right? Yeah, right. Eight,
1: almost nine years. He was himself a fugitive slave. Right. Susceptible to recapture.
0: Despite the fact that he was running around giving oh, yeah. speeches and making it clear he, he was he a runaway slave. He took tremendous
1: risk in doing that, and and
0: almost unimaginable, David.
1: I know it is. Well, especially when you got out to the Midwest. I mean there were areas out in um, Ohio or even western Pennsylvania uh, where there were a lot of southern immigrants who had come up uh, and uh, it was not a safe place. And these troops of abolitionists often got attacked by mobs. Uh, i 've been asked many times out on the book tour you know why wasn 't Douglas assassinated, why wasn't he attacked more often? The truth is he was attacked many, many times, as were other abolitionists. but part of the answer to that is that Americans in those years did not carry guns the way we do or the way some
0: and you and and yet do. we think of people yeah. as having more guns we than.
1: think of that as a raw frontier society, well, they had hunting rifles and so on, but they didn 't carry their hunting rifles. To an to an anti-slavery gathering, they carried brickbats and rotten eggs, and one time he had a live pig thrown at him <laughs> on the altar of a church, which he made a big deal out of because you know, I don't know what that meant, um, but uh, you know, but part of the purpose of these gatherings, when abolitionists went out to to you know trouble an audience, they were trying to get those audiences. They were to trying react. to
0: be that to. They wanted Their purpose a reaction. was to yeah, provoke, them. to
1: trouble the water and provoke.
0: So, David, I I want to make sure we don't. Um, I mean, you and I I think could probably go on for oh, hours. We could. But
1: it's a big I, life.
0: <laughs> it, it's a it's a huge life. There are two other things I want to make sure. Sure. Uh, actually, three that I want to make sure uh, that we cover. One is I was fascinated mm-hmm. by his family. Yeah. So. His wife is Anna, who's illiterate, um, but manages to not only hold the fort down, but has all these, you know, as you Mm -hmm. said, Mm -hmm. fictive kin siblings Mm -hmm. uh, showing up. Mm -hmm. His kids, uh, Mm -hmm. particularly uh, his son-in-law, Nathan Sprague, um, and his sons were not 'er ne'er-do-wells, but Mm -hmm. somehow never got it together.
1: Yeah. Good and, way of um although Nathan might qualify as an heir to wealth,
0: yeah, right,
1: <laughs> the so, son-in-law.
0: <laughs> so, what is you know, spend a few minutes sure. talking to us about being the son mm-hmm. or daughter mm-hmm. of Frederick Douglass or the wife? You know, he's you yeah. know the irony of him yearning yeah. for family and then never being home. I know, I know.
1: Talk about contradictions. He lived a lot of contradictions at the same time. Well, this
0: was one to me.
1: Oh, no question. And I'm glad you picked up on that because that's what I was intending. Uh, Douglas deeply, deeply yearned for home because uh, he'd never had one. Uh, and Anna gave him that home. Anna was his – and he fell in love with Anna in Baltimore when he's a teenager. That's That we can say. She follows him bravely out of slavery. She took the same risks he did. She never gained literacy, and that was not without trying. Douglas hired tutors. Uh, His daughter tried to help, uh, as did a few other people. But for whatever the reasons that we cannot entirely know, Anna never became a reader, which means within a short time, the most famous uh, black man of letters, the most famous black leader in the world, was married to a woman with whom he could not totally share his intellectual, professional, public life. She remained a, a domestic woman who almost never traveled with him. But they had five children. Uh, four lived to adulthood. Uh, the daughter Annie, uh, you know, Anna's namesake. And we now have one photograph of Douglas sitting with little Annie in those incredible pigtails. She died at age 11 of, in a diphtheria epidemic in 1860 which tore the family apart, apart initially. Um, but it was never easy to be the son or the daughter of Frederick Douglass. And I would say for two reasons at least, one of which was getting a a, a serious education and, and moving into some kind of serious professions was never easy for black Americans mm-hmm. throughout the whole 19th century. Douglass is... What a friend of mine would call almost a freak. He's this Mm -hmm. genius with words who manages partly because people.
0: Literally bigger than life.
1: Bigger than life, but he manages through his voice and his pen to make a living. He never earned a dime from 1841 to 1877 any other way than with voice and pen. Mm. How many people can do that? Now, he had some help, too, from his British friends who kept Still. supporting him. Yeah. No, he had patrons here and there, not least of which was Julia Griffiths. But, but they, the kids grow up in this home of this increasingly famous man who edits a newspaper. The boys became printers. They became apprentices on the printing presses. They were all part. Of, in fact, the newspaper by the 1850s was a family affair, and they all remembered it that way. The newspaper had to be set in type by Thursday and it had to be mailed out on Saturday. And, and uh, the daughter, Rosetta, remembered that they all basically took at least one day off of school every week to help get the paper out. Yeah. So it was a family business in that sense. Anna, meanwhile, builds a huge garden. Her orchards were famous. Her Maryland biscuits were famous. People used to send her seeds. But she was a thorough domestic. Now, that's hardly unusual in the 19th century.
0: But here's what is unusual. This man mm-hmm. writes three autobiographies. Right. Right. Three. With a lot of words. How many words Thousands. in there are about Anna?
1: She gets absolutely one mention in 1,200 pages of autobiography, and she's called My Wife.
0: So what is that about?
1: Well, partly it's about the nature of that, of those texts. He's creating one primary character.
0: Mm. It's the hero.
1: The hero is the self-made hero at the center of the story. And nobody gets into that center uh, without being extremely pertinent to each episode. Now, still, that's... And, and and it must be said, too, that in the 19th century, nobody wrote all tell-all autobiographies. And they yet, didn't they didn't that.
0: write about domestic issues. They didn't.
1: Memoir was not yet the kind of let-me-tell-you-my-life.
0: Well, you any, and even novels that no, we think exactly. of in a contemporary way were just beginning.
1: Only, only Private life was only expressed in subtlety. Mm-hmm. So, that's not surprising. I don't However, know. It annoyed me. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, well it should annoy you and I can tell you stories of when I was writing this and I would show it I would show a chapter to friends uh, particularly a couple of of women colleagues and I'd say now tell me what you think of what I'm writing about this and at one point one said you're being too hard on Douglas public men had to travel you know and another one would say yeah yeah he's an absent father you know (laughs) there's no question he is Uh, and and so on Um, now That was not an easy marriage. It lasted 44 years. It Mm. was clearly a very difficult marriage with time. Uh, We have all of one actual letter where Douglas explodes writing to a friend about about the way Anna would sometimes yell at him when he would get home. Good for her. Exactly. And you wonder how many dozens and dozens of other times had had this happened. But his complaint was essentially that, well, Anna – he, and I'm paraphrasing, but he said, you know, Anna may not be a reader uh, and so on, but she sure can speak. And she just let me know what a terrible husband and father I am. Mm. That spoke volumes. We only got one letter that survives yeah. like that.
0: But you have to presume it was representative.
1: Ah, uh, uh, yes. In fact, the daughter, Ro- Ro- Rosetta, who's an extraordinary young woman... Who had actually more education than her brothers,
0: and she went on to have seven kids, right? Yeah,
1: and made a very bad marriage.
0: Yeah, Nathan.
1: And that young woman could have. She she was a teacher for a while uh, and tried to to make a profession of a sort. And then she married this guy Nathan Sprague, who was a, a Civil War soldier, a former fugitive slave who turned out to be what my mother would have called a ne'er-do-well. He was always wandering off out west to try to make a living. They separated two or three times. but Always
0: borrowing money from Frederick.
1: Always in debt to his father-in-law, even sued his father-in-law at one point. It's a dysfunctional extended family to a degree. Having said all of that, Douglas loved his children, was incredibly proud of the son's service in the Civil War, He recruited them into the army, which is another question he never wrote a word about. All he told us is that he was proud. But one of my questions for Douglas, if I could ever get him in a room, is, sir, what do you say to your 19- and 20-year-old sons when you recruit them into an army where they not only can die, but they can be enslaved? What did you say to them? Mm. Did they go for your reasons or theirs? You know, I just am dying to ask him that, but he hasn't answered it yet. Uh, But but
0: try harder.
1: I will try harder. But there are beautiful letters that survive enough of them between father, daughter, father and the three sons that show us an incredibly loving, devoted family. And yet, especially the sons, they cannot make a living. They cannot keep jobs. The oldest son, Lewis, was much more stable. He ended up owning some real estate. He ended up owning a grocery store and so on in Washington, D.C. The sons tried very hard to listen to their father about being self-reliant and becoming entrepreneurs and so on. But they had a devil of a time making a living and they had lots of children. Was that
0: as much about the the capacity for blacks to – get jobs, start businesses, and function, or their own <laughs> shadow of of being the kids yeah. of Frederick Douglass?
1: My judgment is that I think it's a bit of both. Uh, I, I couldn't live with this story as long as I did and read all these letters without realizing that Charles, for example, one of the sons, Just loses job after job and is always complaining. Mm -hmm. Never seems satisfied. And becomes
0: pretty self-pitying.
1: Very self-pitying. And after a while, you say, come on, grow up. Enough sport. And so did his father. Uh, And the same goes for Frederick Jr. And then Frederick Jr. died at, what, the age of 50? Um, Anyway, uh, on the other hand, this is – Civil War, Reconstruction, Gilded Age America. Yeah, uh, the racism in that society toward young, aspiring, ambitious men who were black uh, is everywhere. Now, it, does, it doesn't mean Douglass didn't help them. Douglas got government jobs. Got them jobs. Jobs they, and- they, they had jobs in the Freedmen's Bureau, jobs in the Foreign Service. At one point, Charles was in the Foreign Service. Uh, so, father was there helping them out. In fact. Uh, committing a lot of nepotism, for which he got hammered in the Washington, D.C. press when he becomes recorder of deeds in District of Columbia. Yeah, the
0: ultimate outsider becoming the ultimate insider. Right,
1: Right. which I make a big theme in the book. But he gets eight appointments in the recorder's office, and four of them are his three sons and his daughter. But so, David, (laughs) one of the other, you know, I... It's a very modern family story in that sense.
0: Yeah, and and so, the, you know, it led to, to this when... I read Ron Chernow's uh, Grant biography. Mm -hmm. One of the things that um, my knowledge was enhanced by understanding more clearly both the promise of Reconstruction Mm -hmm. and then the double tragedy Mm -hmm. of the unwinding of Reconstruction and the growth of the Ku Klux Klan Mm -hmm. and Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. So. Spend a bit of time talking to us about how Frederick Douglass and how the boys, Hmm. his boys, ended up um, dealing with that transformation.
1: Yes, it's a huge part of the story because the trajectory of Douglass's life is extraordinary if you think about it. He's a radical activist who lives to see his cause triumph in his 40s in the middle of his life, but he's going to live 30 more years to see those very victories of emancipation and the the three constitutional amendments, the first Civil Rights Acts and all the rest. He's going to live long enough to see almost all of those victories betrayed, Mm -hmm. all but erased both by the Supreme Court and then by terror and violence and the counter-revolution of the Southern white Democratic Party in Reconstruction and then through the Gilded Age. It's the rare reformer, if you think about it, through history. That
0: sees that... Who goes
1: from that radical outsider who is never inside of any power and is always beating on the doors to being at the center of the triumph and then actually gets to join the party of victory to a degree, never as an elected official, always as an appointed official. But what happens to the man who was the... Radical outsider who becomes a political insider. What kinds of compromises must he make? What kinds of uh, uh, adjustments must he make to real power? And then what kinds of attacks will he endure? And he does from the By next generation. By his own generation.
0: previous, yeah.
1: The next generation of black leadership. It's, that's a fascinating part of Douglass' story. And here's where that Evans collection became so crucial uh, as a window into this. There, there are several next-generation black male leaders all of whom have college educations, they're not born as slaves, and here's this Douglas, never day in his schoolroom in his life, who's the most famous he's the leader of black America, and you know, he's this great orator that can outdo anybody. But they don't agree with him. They disagree on what to do about the Republican Party, they disagree on the Kansas Exodus, they disagree on this and disagree on that, and they start hammering him. And we find out a lot about Douglas in that process. Uh, part of which is he was hypersensitive to slights, criticism, criticism, slights of any kind. But he
0: became highly pragmatic.
1: Oh yes, yes. Douglas becomes actually he becomes brilliant in many ways at pragmatic politics at trying to hold on to those victories of emancipation, civil and political rights, at the same time he sees them being violated and erased. because he says, look, we have nowhere else to go. We have no other party to defend us. We have no other home. We have to stay and fight. We've been here before. We, 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 we've seen this. We, we've been violated throughout our history. We're being violated again. But he kept up a faith, right or wrong, you know, and, and at the time he was judged for this and he's been judged since, right or wrong. He kept up a faith in basically creeds. They were the creeds of the Declaration of Independence and they were the creeds of the natural rights tradition,
0: mm-hmm. which
1: he became such a proponent of. And sometimes that makes him sound like uh, a compromiser and to some degree he was um, Douglass believed in this idea of the American project. He, he absolutely believed in the experiment of a republic that had been remade, not the original republic. It was the second republic born out of emancipation, the war, the triumph of union victory, and the constitutional amendments that did frankly recraft the constitution. We live under the constitution of the 14th Amendment. Despite all the people now trying to get rid of yeah. birthright citizenship. We're going to
0: come back to that. OK,
1: fine. But Douglass, to his dying day, has this dilemma, this terrible burden of defending that victory at a time that it's really being erased yeah. and defeated.
0: I just found that when I read the Grant biography and now when I read your biography of Douglas, yeah. I just found – you know, what the, the imagery I had mm-hmm. is – that Not that you're in reach of the brass ring, but that yeah. you had the brass ring, you and then it got it. taken away.
1: Yeah. I'll give you one quick example that, that shows the transition. He took a speech on the road that he first crafted, I think, in 1867. So it's only two years after the war. It's at the peak of the debates over Reconstruction. All things seem possible. He called it the Composite Nation. And he's still giving it up through about 1869, maybe even into 70. He gave it a lot of times. It's a classic statement. It would, seem, it would seem like a piece of the curriculum in a school today. It's this vision of a multi-ethnic, multicultural America where race is essentially defeated as a problem, a blending of people in this experiment of democracy. Mm. It's this amazingly hopeful sort of speech. But he doesn't give that speech after 1870. He stops doing it. That Mm. vision, that dream that's in the middle of that speech, he's not sure he can take that point on the road anymore because now he's got to argue against... The Ku Klux Klan and the uses of violence and terror across the South. He's and got, Supreme
0: Court decisions. And Supreme Court
1: decisions, which start in the 1870s and, the, and then culminate in his life, at least, in 1883 with the civil rights cases, which basically erased the federal enforcement of the 14th Amendment.
0: So, David, you, you had – this is gonna, going to air um, tomorrow after mm. the election. We're recording <laughs> this on the day of okay. uh, the midterms. All right. And so I have two questions. One of which um, is reflected in your very, um, very concise, mm. smart op-ed in the New York Times this morning. Thank you about voting. But
1: they what, edited that down a little.
0: <laughs> I figured it's their job, David. <laughs> I, know, I, know. Um, I know. But but here's a question that I thought of as I read the book and as I mm-hmm. think about voting. Sure. Um, and as I read your piece this morning. Would Frederick Douglass today, on November 6th, -hmm. 2018, be heartened or disheartened about the state of racism Mm -hmm. in our country?
1: I've been asked a lot. I've been asked that question a lot on on the book tour, which won't surprise you. It's on everybody's mind. Well, my guess is that he'd be very disheartened. He would (laughs) look... He, as many of us, would look at our recent history and say, "Wow, what a victory!" seemed to have been won when you elected this African American as the president. The country endured this horrific recession, almost depression, revived somehow out of that. But it would not have surprised him that President Obama's election caused a counter-revolution. Mm-hmm. He, li- Douglas, lived just
0: like Reconstruction. Douglas and- lived
1: the ultimate counter-revolution of American history. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't have surprised him at all. Uh, on the other hand, what we find now with the kind of authoritarian you know, white nationalism, the appeal to to racial fear, the, the appeal to ethnic division rather than diversity, the appeal against the immigrant, and and, and just the, also, frankly, this appeal to somehow limited, limited, limited government, which the Republican Party claims to stand for, although I don't know how which it the, you can know, under Trump because they're spending us blind now. Be, with we'll tax have the cuts. biggest defi- yeah. deficits we've seen. Douglas believed in activist interventionist federal power. There would have been no black freedom without it. There would have been no defeat of the Confederacy without it. There have been no... End of slavery with us, and he it.
0: matched it with a sense of self-reliance. Absolutely, but felt that that was a partnership, right?
1: You have read the book very carefully, and I'm honored. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding, because that that seems a great contradiction to people. Here's Douglas preaching in the 1870s, black self-reliance. Every time he has a black audience, you know, lift yourselves up, make your own schools, stop complaining. But every black leader in the 19th century preached black self-reliance. What else could they do in yeah. a society that has enslaved you, denied you, keeps trying to, to erase and destroy your rights? What else choice do you have but, but self-reliance?
0: Give you no sense of family, rip you exactly. from your family.
1: And he preached it to his kids and he preached it to audiences. But he always finished whenever he would say, you know, leave the black man alone, uh do nothing to him, he used to say. He would always follow that by saying, but give him fair play, which mm-hmm. meant equality before the law. Yeah. Now, turns out that was a little naive to just expect that that would be done. Um, but Black Self-Reliance, along with the fact, and, and this was the central fact of his life, that it took enormous, unprecedented federal action to end slavery in all-out war. And then it took enormous... Frankly, revolutionary constitutional action in the three great Civil War amendments in the first Civil Rights Act to create the beginnings, at least, of black equality. That came because government was an instrument of doing it. Mm-hmm. So, if Douglas were alive now, first of all, he'd, he'd have to wake up and realize that the parties have completely reversed by name and substance. Yeah. Um, and he couldn't be a. That's
0: a little. That's a little uh, jarring when you're reading the book, or, or when you read you the Grant having, biography. Yeah, that it's the Republicans who yeah. sound like Democrats today, right. and it was the Democrats
1: right. who sound
0: like Republicans. <laughs> well,
1: you work on it long enough in your life, and you just keep your head in the 19th century, and it'll work for you. Otherwise, it is jarring. So, I David, one that. of
0: the things that mm. occurs to me is we're having this conversation, and you're talking about the kind of division and diversity that we're having. Have you gotten criticism mm-hmm. uh, as a white man mm. uh, becoming an expert on th- one of the most renowned black men of mm. our country's history?
1: Uh, I used to. Let's put it that way.
0: Uh, you I, sort of I, earned. <laughs> in,
1: in, in younger times... Uh, Yes, uh, I've been challenged on that, both in classrooms and publicly, but frankly, never as much as anyone might imagine, especially with time. Uh, it turns out <sighs> you write enough things and people find themselves reading it and they respect it. I'll give you one, fair, one, one example among hundreds. I, one of my book talks was in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Was,
0: I love that you're doing a book talk. You're doing like a book tour.
1: Well, it's a tour (laughs) with lots of talks. How
0: cool is that?
1: Uh, It's amazing. It's amazing that people want to come out and it's amazing that they buy the book. And have
0: have this conversation. And
1: have these conversations with people who've really read the book. And I I cannot tell you how how good that makes me feel. But I just did one in Chapel Hill, North Carolina a week or two ago sponsored by the local NAACP it was a mostly black audience that followed with a panel about Douglas and the 14th amendment an entirely black panel except for one one incredible progressive white radical of North Carolina who turns out to be a hero of this whole crowd of people it was. They just honored me and the book. They asked me to do the keynote talk. Nobody brought up race. Yeah. It tended to be an older audience, but these were people who lived the civil rights revolution. But that's revolution. good.
0: You know what? I'm I'm happy. They, they to want hear good that, history.
1: David. We all want good history. I don't care who writes it. And so
0: speaking of good history, before <laughs> I ask you the last question, sure. So even though we've been talking for way over our show's normal. <laughs> Okay. Uh, limit, but yeah. I I um, am very appreciative mm. of your time, but for. For our listeners to know, we didn't get to like a million topics I know. that are I know. Um, sure. as interesting and absorbing. Like the Civil War. <laughs> uh, like the whole Civil War. <laughs> like we skipped over the Civil oh, War. We got to the victory.
1: We got to the victory in,
0: uh, the, the, victory and in the, the aftermath. Uh,
1: betrayal, yeah.
0: Um, but on an entirely um, different note, so I want to make sure our listeners know that even though it's a big book, mm-hmm. um, I would encourage mm. people to read it because mm. it covers such an expanse of time yeah. and has pertinence today.
1: Oh, yeah. Um, that over and over you find that, in, particularly in Douglass' words, you read a passage by Douglas and it just stuns you because it could be in today's headlines.
0: Exactly. <laughs> so I want to make sure that, um, it, you know, people don't it seems like we covered a lot, but we didn't yeah. cover um, – You know, hardly the breadth of the story that you bring Mm -hmm. to this really wonderful uh, biography, Mm -hmm. uh, David. But Mm -hmm. I can't let you leave without Mm -hmm. answering the question I like to ask our guests, which is what's the book that changed your life?
1: Oh, wow. Whoa, I'd have to say I only get one.
0: No, you can have two. Two. (laughs) Don't try to sneak it to three, though. No, I won't. Okay.
1: Well, I'd have to choose Whitman's Leaves of Grass. Okay. And then... And why? Because Whitman wrote about everything. He wrote about every human emotion. He wrote about every human aspiration. And I suspect at the end of the day, uh, it's Whitman's hold on hope Mm. that...
0: I might re- reread that. Oh, there's David. so many
1: different poems that. Uh, I'm going to
0: pick it up this week. Yes, I know I mean, a bookstore. I'm going to go get it. I bet it. <laughs> you do, and,
1: and and there are many editions, and it's uh, forever in print. But in Leaves of Grass, one can find motivation. One can you, know, you can pick up Song of Myself, the long epic poem that is kind of, or Song of the Open Road, if you're about to go out and try to do something, or or the war poems. I mean. Uh, Whitman's voice uh I keep I keep Whitman kind of handy uh almost anywhere I go
0: sort of the way I feel about Emerson
1: yeah well Emerson's essays almost mm-hmm. I almost said that mm-hmm. but the other would be portions of the bible believe it or not I I've been a reader of the bible without knowing what I'm doing
0: as a religious person or uh, as partly, a partly
1: partly but more more so like in the ways I needed to with Douglas to understand biblical story and language and power. I mean, the Exodus story was at the heart of Douglas's story. He appropriated that story, and he's hardly alone. Americans have been forever appropriating the mm-hmm. Exodus story. Douglas put himself into it, put his people into it, put his nation into it. Um, and there were actually many times during the writing of this book uh, when I wished I could just take a year off. Didn't he
0: use the story of Joseph?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes. In in Egypt. Mm-hmm. Yes. And and w- especially when he got to visit there. Right. And he saw the landscapes.
0: So that was a trip he took with his new wife, his second we, wife Helen. We didn't Helen. even get to talk no, about didn't. Helen.
1: But they did an extraordinary eleven month tour of Europe and all the way to Egypt and Greece, and he kept a diary on that.
0: God, Let's go wish. back to your book. See, we'll well, I the, we'll, we'll God, go <laughs> I wish he'd have kept more
1: diaries because he was good at it. But uh, yeah, I find myself a student now, not a very informed one, and not very good at it, but a student of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah. Those those Old Testament prophets—they're confounding at times and, and and almost impossible to understand at times. But uh, I have a dear friend here in New Haven, um, uh, a rabbi. Uh, Jim Ponet, mm. former head rabbi. Who you
0: acknowledge in your uh, book. I
1: do indeed. He's the one who turned me on to reading Abraham Heschel, the great Jewish theologian who wrote the book called The Prophets, among many other books. And that book helped me understand the meaning of what a prophet is mm. and is not. And it gave me the courage to put that word prophet in the title of the book because it's an awfully big word. If you're going to put that in your title, you've got to be ready to defend it. But uh, Abraham Heschel gave me many, many, many definitions of what a prophet actually is, and I found that Douglas fits virtually all of them. So I went for it. So if you, you only give me two, it's going to be all right, I'll take em. portions of the Bible and then Whitman's Leaves of Grass. All
0: right. Well, David, <laughs> I am uh, enormously grateful to you for taking the time to have this uh, conversation. Um, I, I hope our listeners have gotten just a a glimpse of why I described this biography as riveting. It is a doorstop, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. doorstop. It even work out with it. You know. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You can – but it is it's, – it's worth the time. You know, I just wrote um, hmm. what I call a dear reader hmm. uh, to our um, hmm. customers for the year-end. And Great. one of the things that I become increasingly alert to is that – we as a society have become a little bit too addicted mm. to the short form, to ah, the soundbite. Yeah. Yeah. And it feels sort of assaulting. Yeah. And um, I think we need to be reminded mm-hmm. that studying the long form, which your biography is, is actually calming. Yeah. It's comforting.
1: Having a longer view is is how we survive any present. We exactly. Know, we know we have kind of been here before,
0: and the immersion. There's something calming about the immersion in yeah. a subject yeah. and taking the long view that I mm. think contributes to our being thoughtful, yeah. rather than rat-a-tat-tat mm. Um, mm. with lots of little bits of information. And right. I think this biography is a good place to uh, start that way of operating again. So thank, well, thank you very much.
1: Well, thank you, Roxanne. And, and I, I completely agree with your description. Long reading is a calming of the soul at the same time it informs the mind. Uh, we just got to find time to do it.
0: <laughs> well, well, you know, there, there's, a, there's, a, the, uh, there's a book that came out and I interviewed him Alan Lightman, ah. in praise of wasting time ah. so he's a he's a well known physicist from m i t sure. and one of the things that he suggests that we do mm. is start by doing nothing thirty minutes a day, yeah. taking a walk without music, mm. um mm. certainly not on the phone, yeah. and just a walk, just nothing right. as a way to start thirty minutes we can all find thirty minutes
1: that or whatever else one wants to call it, that's meditative. Oops. That's meditative, which we probably should all be doing, but never yeah. find time to do it.
0: Yeah. So, so maybe yeah. maybe we'll see each other taking a walk on St. There Ronan. you go. I hope so. All I right. Thank so. you so much, David.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Thanks again to David Blight. His biography, Frederick Douglass, Prophet of Freedom, is available now. I hope you'll continue to send us your thoughts and emails. You can email us at info at just dot right com or message us on our Facebook page. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.